0: to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. the The Emperor Napoleon has an important connection with Cairns and there are some interesting ones he has with Australia too. In this program, I'm going to tell you about both and where you can go and see the large, unmissable relic from Napoleon in Cairns. Napoleon terrified English children for many years, and perhaps that's simply telling the truth of these people who value violently inflicting their desires and ambitions on other people. Here's how Betsy Balcombe, a young girl who happened to be living on the island of St. Helena in the middle of the South Atlantic, saw Napoleon as a young child when she was living in England. She wrote in her memoirs, The earliest idea I had of Napoleon was that of a huge ogre or giant with one large flaming red eye in the middle of his forehead and long teeth protruding from his mouth with which he tore to pieces and devoured naughty little girls especially those who did not know their lessons. She changed her view of him when he lived for a short time in their summer house called The Pavilion and then as a nearby neighbour. The close and warm personal relationship that developed between her and her family with the Emperor eventually saw them more or less banished to Australia, where her father was appointed as the colonial treasurer of New South Wales. But now we're in the year 1814. Napoleon has suffered disaster in Russia, losing most of his soldiers during the retreat. The European powers, seeing a weakened Napoleon and funded by the British, rise up to overthrow the man who they see as a tyrant. Napoleon is forced to abdicate, hand over his French emperor's crown and trade it in for a much smaller one. Because although the powers of Europe remove Napoleon as emperor, they don't remove him very far. He's given the tiny island of Elba as his new miniature empire. Elba is in the Mediterranean. It's 260 kilometers south of France and 10 kilometers from Italy. Now as empires go, Napoleon's new empire is not as big as an empire should be. Napoleon had previously had an empire with nearly 1 million soldiers, a population of 44 million and he controlled land of 2.1 million square kilometers. His new empire was a bit smaller. He had about 700 soldiers. The size of his empire was about 800 square kilometers, and the population was just 12,000. On 28 April, 1914, Napoleon boarded a British frigate bound for Elba. He landed there on 3rd May, Napoleon was a man of tireless energy and extraordinary organisational ability. As soon as he arrived in Elba, he applied all of his enormous talents and by nightfall, everything on the island of Elba had been sorted out. Now what do I do? Well, I exaggerate a little in saying this, but it wasn't too far removed from the truth. It became apparent that Napoleon's money was a problem. There was nowhere near enough. Under the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which made arrangements for Napoleon's abdication and retirement to Elba, the French government was supposed to give Napoleon two million francs a year. It quickly became apparent that the new French king, Louis Eighteenth had no intention of honouring that commitment. Once the money Napoleon had brought with him from France ran out his income on Elba wouldn't cover his substantial expenses. In November 1814, Colonel Neil Campbell, the British commissioner on the island, whose job was to keep an eye on Napoleon, wrote to Lord Castlereagh, If pecuniary difficulties press upon him much longer so as to prevent his vanity from being satisfied by the ridiculous establishment of a court which he has hitherto supported in Elba, and if his doubts are not removed, I think he is capable of crossing over to Piombino, the closest town in Italy, with his troops, or of any other eccentricity. But if his residence in Elba and his income are secured to him, I think he will pass the rest of his life there in tranquillity. Charles Dickens, in his famous book David Copperfield, wrote, annual income 20 pounds annual expenditure 19.6 result happiness annual income 20 pounds annual expenditure 20 pounds and 6 result misery spending more than you earn is what Mr Macorber was saying here and he said that leads to unhappiness Colonel Neil Campbell, the British officer charged with living on Elba and keeping an eye on Boney, came to the same conclusion when he reported to Lord Castlereagh in December 1814, The Intendant General of the island of Elba informs me that Napoleon's troops and vessels cost him one million of francs per year, while all of his sources of revenue will not net 400,000 this year. In addition to the discharging of a number of servants lately, he has reduced to one half the salary of his surgeon, treasurer and some others who hold civil appointments in his household and who accompanied him from Fontainebleau. In early February 1815, Colonel Neil Campbell noted, For some time past, Napoleon has suspended his improvements as regards roads and the finishing off of his country residence. This, I think, on account of the expense. Some of the roads, as well as a bridge, built entirely for his own use, and unconnected with the public have yet, by his order, been paid for entirely by the inhabitants of Elba. Napoleon tried to find workarounds for his shortage of money, he tried to get the people of Elba to work without pay. And that, of course, would have caused them the same problem that Napoleon was experiencing. He tried taxing the good citizens of Elba for the time before he arrived there. Funnily, the Elbans weren't impressed. Benjamin Franklin once wrote, For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse... The rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. You get the idea. So, for a couple of million francs, maybe Napoleon would have stayed put on Elba. The other thing that encouraged Napoleon to leave Elba was how appallingly hopeless the French king was. He'd inherited all the bad traits of Louis XVI, who had lost his head in the French Revolution. And Napoleon knew how much the French people loved him, which was actually pretty much spot on. Then there was the real kicker. The meetings to redraw the map of Europe in a way that would avoid future wars, which ended up being known as the Congress of Vienna, were being held. The newspapers and doubtless spies loyal to Napoleon were reporting on plans by the European powers to move Napoleon far, far away from Europe, including as an option the inhospitable, unpleasant and very remote island of St Helena in the South Atlantic. So looking at the way things were going, a man like Napoleon had no real incentive to sit around on Elba waiting to be taken away to absolute obscurity. The European powers were leaving him with no choice but to make a comeback, and he did, and Cans helped him. Well, something in Cans played its part in his escape that led to his Waterloo. Grognard is a French word. It's like the word the Americans used for their soldiers in Vietnam, grunts. This word was one that was common in Napoleonic France. It meant grumblers. Interestingly, nothing in the Treaty of Fontainebleau that had been entered into with Napoleon in 1814 when he went to Elba prevented him from leaving Elba. On 16 February 1815, the atmosphere on Elba was so thick with the sense that Napoleon was going to return to France that Colonel Neil Campbell sailed to Italy carrying a dispatch for Lord Castle Ray, expressing his fears that Napoleon was about to make a comeback. On that very day, Napoleon issued orders for the ship that made up his tiny fleet, L'Inconstant, to be painted in the colours of an English warship, mounted with as many cannons as possible and provisioned for a long voyage. Immediately, L'Inconstan was ready, Napoleon ordered it, to be put to sea, so that when the British warship, the Partridge, returned to Elba, it wouldn't see the new look at Lanconstant. By Sunday, 26 February 1815, Napoleon boarded Lanconstant and in the company of a number of other boats that he had paid to have assembled, set sail to invade France. Some of the people of Elba cheered as Napoleon left. I think it was his leaving they were cheering about, not his plans to reconquer France. The army of Louis XVIII would have numbered over 100,000 men. Napoleon had with him 600 men of his old guard, 100 Polish lancers with their saddles but no horses, 300 members of a Corsican battalion and 50 gendarmes. This looked like one war he couldn't win. Napoleon landed at Gulf 1 between Cannes and Antibes. He then began his advance on Paris. But it seemed that his return would be short-lived and humiliating. Marshal Ney, la plus brave des braves, the bravest of the brave, and one of Napoleon's most popular marshals, was sent to stop him. When Ney left the French capital on 17 March 1815, he told the French king, Louis Eighteenth that he would bring Napoleon back to Paris in a cage. Ney's reputation was awesome. He'd fought with the French army since 1792. He was the last man to leave Russia after the disastrous retreat in 1812. If he took Napoleon into captivity, then all of Napoleon's other supporters would give up the struggle. So now we have the dramatic moment on the road to Grenoble. Ney, standing, blocking Napoleon's advance to Paris. With him was the Fifth Regiment, heavily outnumbering Napoleon's small band. On command, they aimed their rifles at Napoleon and the men he was leading. Napoleon had no chance of winning. But Napoleon made this into a battle of wits, which he could and did win. He signalled to his men to lower their weapons. Then alone, he advanced towards his fellow countrymen. He halted only a few metres from them, not saying a word. He stared the men of the 5th Regiment in the eyes, silent. Then, without taking his eyes off the Royalist Regiment, he opened up the front of his coat and said, If there is any man among you who would kill his Emperor, Napoleon declared, here I stand. I think Napoleon didn't care whether he died at that moment. It would have made a good death. There was a dangerous moment's silence. An officer ordered, FIRE! Nothing happened. For the longest time, nothing happened. Then the soldiers burst out cheering, Vive l'Empereur!" and surrounded their emperor. The same happened all the way to Paris, with French soldiers going over to their emperor. Louis XVIII fled Paris without putting up a fight. His return to power all came to an end, on the 18th of June, 1815, at Waterloo. Ney's reputation for bravery only grew with his exploits in this battle. Five horses were killed under him. For Ney's loyalty to Napoleon, he was executed by a firing squad on 7 December, 1815, after being convicted of high treason. So, what has any of this got to do with Cairns? Well, Do you remember the brig that Napoleon used to leave Elba to return to France on his road to his defeat at Waterloo? It was the brig L'Inconstant. After Napoleon's defeat, L'Inconstant was taken over by the British and renamed HMS Swiftshaw. HMS Swiftshaw was used to sail the England-Australia run. In about 1829, HMS Swiftshaw, navigating the perilous waters of the Great Barrier Reef... Renaground north of Cape Sidmouth near Cowan. It was making a voyage from Sydney to Mauritius. It founded. Then it all but disappeared from everyone's memory until in 2015 the legendary Australian diver Ben Crop found its wreck. Ben Krop is an Emmy nominated filmmaker and a highly experienced shipwreck investigator. He's discovered more than 100 shipwrecks. He's been awarded the Order of Australia, and he's been inducted into the International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame. The anchor of La Constant was found by the Royal Australian Navy in 1991. Today, it's standing outside the gym in Draper Street, Cairns, as part of the HMAS Cairns Base. But the location of the wreck was a mystery until Ben Cropp found it. Finding this wreck was a really dangerous dive. Not only were sharks a problem, but Ben Krop said that although the wreck wasn't in deep water, it was close to the shore. And on the beach, only 3.2 kilometres away, there were track marks across the beach made by six large crocs. So they were out there somewhere sharing the waters with Ben. To finish up today's program, I thought I'd take you back to that barren, windswept island sitting in the middle of the South Atlantic, when Napoleon had been taken to end his days. I told you about the Balcombe family, letting Napoleon stay in their summer house, the Pavilion, while the British completed the accommodation they had in mind for him. While Napoleon stayed at the Pavilion, he developed a very close personal connection with the Balcombe family. William Balcom was on Elba as an employee of the British East India Company. Napoleon nicknamed him "Cinq Boutes, Five Bottles, because of their social drinking together. Napoleon played whist with their daughter, young Betsy. She scolded him for playing badly and letting her win. She teased him by asking if he was sorry that he'd invaded Russia. Endless games of hide-and-seek and blind man's buff were enthusiastically joined in by the Emperor. You can't help but get the feeling that these times were perhaps the truly happiest days of the life of this great man. Finally, his official new accommodation, Longwood House, was ready. Napoleon, it seems, would have been happy enough to live at the pavilion, but the British government ordered his move to Longwood House. Longwood House was described by Betsy as being situated in a place where the wind was ceaseless, the walls wept with damp, the dining room had no window and was under constant siege by rats banging their heads against the tin plates hammered onto the floor to stop them getting in. A new British governor arrived on the island, Sir Hudson Lowe. He appeared to be a humourless man, perhaps taking pleasure in making life miserable for Napoleon. He kept the emperor under close watch and close confinement. The Balcombe family helped him to smuggle letters out to the world press, revealing the harsh conditions that he was living under. Napoleon's life from this time on was miserable. It was an endless mental torment for him until the day he was able to welcome his death. And that's all for the danger zone. Pretty exciting stuff, eh? My next program will be even better. So join me, Paul, for The Danger Zone.